Hello, everyone. I'm Priest Willis, and this is Missions and Marketplace Podcast, episode number 33. Today, I'm joined by Damon Brown. Damon believes technology can bring us closer together, and after talking with him, you probably will too. His recently acquired Apple Top 10 app, Cuddler, landed him on the cover of Wall Street Journal and kickstarted the platonic connection industry. Really, they were just hugs. His breakthrough TED book, Our Virtual Shadow, Why We Are Obsessed with Documenting Our Lives Online, foreshadowed the modern analog living movement. His TED Talks pushed the value of being fully present in our daily lives. His script writing has empowered TED, Al Jazeera, America, and other outlets. Damon shares his entrepreneurial insights in his daily Inc. magazine online column, Sane Success, and regularly contributes to Playboy, Entrepreneur, and Slate. You'll notice that I especially had a great conversation with Damon because him and I spoke for over an hour and a half, and typically when we talk that long, I'll break up the episodes, but I wanted to leave it in its full state and let you hear it for yourself, something that you really can pull in as entrepreneurs and people listening to this podcast, I want you to really hone in on what Damon says. When Damon speaks, he is very thoughtful. He's very articulate. He's really intimate in his words, not only his writing, but in his words. He truly believes about empowering entrepreneurs with, as he points out in Inc. Magazine, sane success. You know, I wrote an article some time ago in the Feedfront Magazine about mentally breaking down your hustle. This is where people have been taught to go after passion until it almost breaks them and then finds this work-life balance. This, in a sense, almost creates anxiety. Damon is saying, look, I'm raising a family, I'm being at home, and I'm doing it with some sanity in place. I want to make sure I put my priorities and my legacy in place. I want to create things. I'm an entrepreneur like all of you guys, but I also want to do it with sanity in place. And I love it. I love the message of intimacy and tech, and I hope you do too. Without further ado... Here is my man, Damon Brown. Welcome to Missions and Marketplace Podcast. Join us as we talk to business and thought leaders to discuss their passions in and outside of business and how it drives them to give and be citizens of goodwill. Let's get started. Damon, welcome to the program. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Yeah, I'm excited to have you. I've been looking forward to talking to you for some time now. You are probably one of the top people on my list that I've I've wanted to interview for so many different reasons, a lot of which we'll discuss here in this podcast. Why don't you tell the audience a little bit about yourself? I'm best known, or, or at least was best known as a journalist. So my background is journalism. I have uh, two degrees in it, uh, one of them from Northwestern. And I spent several years as a journalist covering in retrospect, the connection between technology and intimacy mm-hmm. and intimacy, not in the traditional sense of, you know, people hooking up or dating, but intimacy as far as with how technology connects us, how we can be in a long distance relationship and technology can help with that. Um, how, when I later became a co-founder, my co-founders were on three in three different countries. And so we wow. were communicating. Uh, yeah, I'll get into that later. But we were <laughs> communicating via, via technology. So as as I became a father, how technology played a part into my connection to my kids. And so basically, that ended up being the pattern that I saw, at least in retrospect. So I did that for many, many years, probably about 15, 16 years. I ended up getting married and my wife had a fellowship up at Stanford and that brought us up to Silicon Valley. And when I was in Silicon Valley, I was writing regularly for the New York Post and a lot of those guys. I was there in kind of the 
the halcyon days and looking back at it because i was i was there when the iphone launched i was there um when the ipad launched and i did a um a book on the ipad that ended up becoming a bestseller i met steve jobs while i was there and i was actually there um when he passed away because i was still in silicon valley at that time so for those three yeah those three or four years i was there it was just it was popping it was crazy um some of my colleagues and friends We'd be eating ramen noodles. And then, you know, a year, (laughs) seriously, a year later, then they became on paper, they became millionaires or billionaires. And so I ended up hanging out with some of the first unicorns. And they were just people that I was cool with, just in my network or whatever. And so it was an amazing time to be there. What was interesting was that I was doing all this work. I was doing a lot of writing. We can get into it a little bit later, but that journalism writing in newspapers and magazines led to me writing books. I did my first major book which was called Porn and Pong, How Grand Theft Auto, Tomb Raider, and Other Sexy Games Changed Our Culture. And that had launched right as I was coming to Silicon Valley. So the timing, I couldn't have planned it better. And had a big launch party, really got connected to a lot of folks there, of course, with the connection with intimacy and technology. And I was doing all this stuff, and I had no interest in getting involved in the startup scene. And so I had a lot of colleagues that were involved in startups, but for me, I had dabbled in a couple of things and had some conversations, but I didn't really get serious until I was actually talking with a friend of mine at the time, and he was trying to remember a quote. And he was like, I can't remember this thing. And I said, well, isn't there an app for that? And he said, no. And then I was like, okay, well, then I need to create it. <laughs> I mean, it was as simple as that. It was very much a, a tipping point moment that lasted five minutes. And that got me into app development really quickly. And so over the course of that period of time, probably about two or three years, I started developing an app, which would later become so quotable. And in developing the app, I started to research how we communicate even more. I actually did program way back in the day. And we're talking COBOL and the original C. Oh, yeah. (laughs) You're going way back with COBOL. Yeah, Fortran. Yeah, exactly. I love technology. And so obviously with what I research. And so I've been programming since I was four or five years old. It's like, but it's one of those things where it was always like a hobby and something that was fun. And I love systems. So I just learned them for fun. And suddenly at that time I was in my thirties and I was pulling on all the stuff that I did in my past. And so I had people that actually were going to help me out with the programming side. And to be frank, they flaked out on me. Mm-hmm. And so suddenly I was the, the man to, to get it together. And as that happened and the startup thing got serious, I ended up uh, proposing to my now wife. We moved down to, to Southern California to be closer to our respective families. And I'm originally from New Jersey, but I have some relatives over here that I'm close to. And her family's over here in Southern California. So we moved down here, left Silicon Valley, got a house within like a couple months after getting married. We, we had our first son coming. And so rapidly, within like a year, left Silicon Valley, bought a house, got married, had a kid coming, our first one. And it was just insane. And this is happening the same time that the startup is warming up. And my son comes out, which is one of the most beautiful moments of my life. And the people that were going to help out with the app disappeared. And at that same time, I had gotten involved with the TED conference and got really close to them. They're really, really great tight-knit community. And I ended up connecting with the the head of TED Books. And we got along extremely well. 
I told him I was learning all this stuff about communication based on my research with So Quotable. I thought that there might be a book there. And they said, all right, let's talk about it. And suddenly I had a book deal with Ted. And so that ended up being my second major book, Our Virtual Shadow, Why We're Obsessed with Documenting Our Lives Online. The most brief way I can explain it is that if you have Facebook, if you have Twitter, if you have Instagram in particular, or even Snapchat, when you're trying to capture particular moments that you care about, that's going to pull you away from that very moment. The danger or the challenge with that, the irony of that, I should say, is that using Snapchat or Twitter or Instagram, they're not rich enough to capture the moment as well as you can by being present. Mm, so true. And so, right? And so I, I won't go further into that. Uh, but but yeah, so I, I did a whole book on it. So I can talk about it for a while. But I realized that by me working on So Quotable, I was contributing to that issue. Because if we're having a great conversation and I want to capture a snippet of it as a quote and share it with other people, I'm pulling myself out of that situation. I'm pulling myself out of our conversation. How do I deal with that? So end up being all this research based on the app. That ended up becoming a book with Ted. And the book with Ted came out before the app was supposed to come out. And in the book, I said the app was coming. <laughs> so let me put this into a, what they used to call a CNN nutshell. So basically, <laughs> I leave Silicon Valley. My colleagues and friends who were supposed to help out with the programming totally disappeared on me. I got my first kid. I'm, a, I'm the primary caretaker. Now, when you say disappeared, what do you mean, Damon? Did they just was like, I'm not helping you? Or did they just get wrapped up in their own projects and disappeared? The person that was going to help the most had the equivalent of a midlife crisis. Okay. And disappeared. Like, yeah, just, and, and no one knew where they were. Got it. Okay. You know, they, they showed up later, so they were fine. But for that period of time, they were not available. Okay. I thought this was going to be the hater story. Like, dude, I'm not going to help you succeed. Okay. <laughs> no, you know, I would have preferred that, you know, because people, people, you know, people, if you deal with someone who's a hater, then at least you know where they're coming from. Yeah, very true. Right. But if you feel as though you have support from someone and they're not really giving support, that's harder. Mm-hmm. That would be my thing, just because I've experienced both, as I'm sure you have to mm-hmm. a certain extent too. Sure. Right. So the disappearing act, I got a book with Ted, like, you know, for me as a public speaker, that's like, you know, one of the, the Mount Everest. <laughs> and it's like, I got a book with Ted, major book. I'm on TV and do all this related to it, saying this app's coming. And then I got a baby that I'm taking care of. No idea what I'm doing as a father, as most first time fathers don't. My wife just went back to work, so I'm completely on my own here, trying to sustain my journalism business because I'm still a journalist, you know, still trying to support this book and the support that I had, technical support, because I knew how to design it, but the technical support, the, the, the nuts and bolts as far as the technology for this app, so quotable, my first app is gone. And so I talk about that in um, my latest book, The Bite Size Entrepreneur, 21 Ways to uh, Ignite Your Passion and Pursue Your Side Hustle, where I, I kind of re- recant that story a little bit, where it was many, many early mornings where I had my son Alec in one hand and I was programming with the other hand. And that was it. It ended up being this really intense hustle where I would get up at 3.15 in the morning and I know that my son woke up usually around 6, 6.15. And during the day, I wanted to be fully present for him. There was a period of time where I tried to do both, where I tried to be the stay-at-home dad and take calls and work at the same time. And after a week or two of that, I realized it wasn't going to work. 
So it ended up slowly escalating to me waking up at like five, but then I realized that I didn't have time to shower. By the time I got into the groove, my son would be up, et cetera. So then that moves to four, but then I didn't have time to eat <laughs> and then I couldn't really function. And then 3, 3.15 ended up being my magic time. And so the 3.15 thing lasted for several months. So what ended up happening is that it's funny what happens when you actually get focused and you have drive because within four months, I ended up learning the Apple programming language, which is called uh, um, Cocoa Touch. And that's what you use to, to program for the, the iPhone and also by extension for the iPad. And so I ended up learning that. I ended up uh, designing the app. And Did you learn that knowing that you were going to come into like so quotable and eventually Cuddler and all of those other kind of apps? Is that the purpose of you doing it? Or was it just your love of tech and going back to your earlier years of just trying something new and, and getting into programming? It was the latter. Yeah, 100% the latter. Like it was pure love. Got like it, it was just... And, and also like a sense of completion too. Um, because again, you know, I promised through one of the, you know, in my eyes, one of the strongest organizations in America, I said, yeah, I'm going to do this. And so it doesn't matter if I have a three month old, it doesn't matter if I'm exhausted. It doesn't matter if, you know, some of my colleagues flaked on me, you know, my word is my bond. So let me complete this. And I think also too, which is kind of a, I've recently written or was on, on TV and, and had an um, interview about what makes an entrepreneur. And I think that's one of those things where you actually rise to those challenges. And when I look back at the times when I was at my very best, when I look back and say, oh, what, how did I do that? That's amazing. It's always those moments when things were the most challenging because that, you know, as they say, steel sharpens steel. So mm -hmm. you you have to have those challenges. You don't make them because some people make them. I don't. I don't believe you should make them. <laughs> life life gives you enough challenges. But when life does give you those challenges, to embrace them and say, okay, I'm going to go full force. I'm going to make this happen. And so within four months, end up learning the Apple programming language, uh, design the thing. A couple of colleagues and friends that I could lean on, they end up giving me good advice as far as with general methods, uh, recommending some good programming books. Uh, looking at my code, which was really, really helpful too, but mostly in, in a sense of getting me in the right mindset. And within that four month period of time, I got a call from Ted and they wanted me to speak. Wow. So imagine if I didn't put in that initial work. Because remember, I was doing all this. It was, um, I remember it was October of 2013. Uh, yeah, because my son was, was, was three, three months. And it was October. And then it was just really, to be frank, like a dark, got my head to the grindstone period from October to December. And then I'd say like right after, right after the first of the year, I got this call from Ted, you know, cause I put my, what do you say? My, my hat in the ring for doing a Ted talk. And then I was like, all right, well, whatever, <laughs> you know, the chance of that. So right after the first of the year, um, about a month before TED was going to happen, they sent me this email and they were like, great. So this is how you get ready for your TED talk. And I was like, what? And then I kind of lost my mind. And then suddenly I was finishing up the app and practicing the TED talk every morning. Wow. I, you know, what's amazing about your story and just to take a step back here is that you mentioned that all the while you were still a journalist. So you're kind of dabbling into these other projects and doing other things that are love interests for you, of course. I mean, People wouldn't spend the time necessarily that you would if if you didn't love some of this stuff just for fun. That is, 
But what's amazing is that you said you were a journalist. Now, I listened to a video that you did. I believe you were talking to a group of journalists and you said you've spent 15, 16 years, whatever it was, creating your own business cards. And you got to a point where you left the title journalist off, (laughs) almost subconsciously agreeing with yourself, if that makes sense, that I'm not just a journalist, which is what I used to identify myself with. And you've stitched all these different things together as you were going along networking with different people. What I like is that your experience crosses many paths from a writer, commentator on sex or intimacy to owning businesses, writing for well-known magazines like, like Inc. How do you, I mean, you've kind of shared with us how you do it, but where does that come from that you touch so many different things? I talk about that a little bit in the Productive Bite Size Entrepreneur, which is the the new the, book. The book, it's a new book, right? And that's a uh, twenty four uh, smart secrets to doing more in less time. And one of the things I talk about is having a core. Mm. So I call it a mission statement or an elevator pitch. It's probably more accurate. I call it an elevator pitch, but if you cut it in half, like something you can state really, really quickly, and people will get it. Or if they don't get it, they'll see all your work and then they'll understand. So for me, it's about how technology brings us closer. So if you look at Porn and Pong, which was about how sexuality and intimacy is depicted in video games and using video games as an analogy or representation of how technology has moved us forward in humanity. And then several years later, I did the book with Ted, Our Virtual Shadow, Why We're Obsessed with Documenting Our Lives Online. That's obviously about social media and how that's changing, how we're connecting to each other for good and for ill. And then if you look at, you know, the body of work before that, you know, the the 15 or 16 years as a, uh, just strictly as a journalist or focused on journalism, then whether I'm writing for, you know, I'm a, I used to be a regular writer for Playboy. So, you know, whether I'm writing for Playboy magazine, I used to write for Family Circle. I used to write for AARP magazine, right? <laughs> I used to write for Electronic Gaming Monthly when they were around. If you if you read any of my material from any of those guys. And that's the only reason why I read Playboy, by the way, was just for your articles. <laughs> just like, for my articles. That, no, nothing else. Nothing else. Totally. <laughs> <laughs> right? You know, but if if you look at um like the best example I could give was I was speaking at a, a journalism conference. I used to be on the board of directors of the American Society of Journalists and Authors. So I was on there for a long time. It's a great organization. I was really happy to, to volunteer with them. And I was at one of their conferences speaking probably about a decade ago. And it was one of my proudest moments because I was telling them if they went on the newsstand right now, they could see my feature in Playboy and they could see my feature in Family Circle, <laughs> you know, and, and as a journalist, that's like, a, at least for me, that was such a huge point of pride to say that. How diverse it is. Yeah, how diverse. And not even from an ego standpoint, but that was the moment where I was like, okay, I got this. It's not really about saying, which is what I was trying to get at um, when I did the keynote for the ASJ and the Society of Professional Journalists Conference. That's the that's what you, the yep. video you had saw online. That's right. And anyone listening, you can catch it at DamonBrown.net. And it's a connection on there. But that's what I was trying to get at when I did the keynote about a year ago, it was November of 2015, was that we tend to get tied up in titles. And we tend to say, okay, well, I am a print journalist. And so if I have an opportunity to be on TV, I probably shouldn't take it because all I do is write. You know, or you can say, I'm an entrepreneur, so if I have an opportunity to write a fantasy novel, I shouldn't take it because that's not my lane. 
And you hear that a lot now. It's like, that's my, not my lane. That's not my lane. The thing is, is that your lane shouldn't be based on what your title is, but should be based on what kind of impact you want to have on the world that's, and what you want people to pay attention to. That's so good, Dame. That's good stuff right there. That, that's a quotable for the show for sure. <laughs> Thank you. So it's about develop. I call it um, in the new book, uh, The Productive Bite-Sized Entrepreneur, I call it developing your core. And one of the things I talk about in that chapter is how people like Richard Branson and Oprah Winfrey and folks like that, and I'm connected to folks who work with them. They're like amazingly productive, like especially Richard Branson, like he, he runs so many different things. And the question is always, how do they run all those things and still seem to be happy and still seem to have a little bit of a life and they seem to be enjoying it. And the thing is, is that it's not the things that they run, but what their focus actually is. I don't know what Richard Branson's focus is. Only, only he knows that, or perhaps he's expressed it in his uh, Losing My Virginity book that came out a few years ago. Um, I don't know what Oprah's focus is. Only, you know, only Gail King and other folks know that, you know, <laughs> and maybe she's expressed that on her, on her network. I know what my focus is, and my focus is, is now twofold. It's showing how technology connects us, and it's also encouraging and inspiring others to pursue entrepreneurship within their current lifestyle. So those are my two things. That's it. You know, so if I'm doing something outside of that, then that's taking more energy than, than necessary. And it's also to a certain extent, wasting my time because those are my two core things. If you see an article of mine, if you see a tweet, if you see a video, it's going to be connected to that. Even with the keynote at the, um, at the ASJ SPJ conference, that was really about encouraging freelance journalists and authors to become more entrepreneurial. And so that still fits within one of those two cores. So I think that's how it took a while for me to understand that. But I think that's how I get everything done. You know, when I was working on on So Quotable and that was a total solo mission, my main thing was to show people how technology connects us. And I love quotes. I love words. So that was my way of doing that and doing it from the side of an entrepreneur and not from the side of, say, doing an article. And one of the things that I, that I often talk about is the conversation I had with my friend about um, how hard it was to remember quotes. That conversation could have turned into a tweet that I sent out. And I said, hey, I had this funny, funny moment. Or it could have become an article that I did for, say, Smithsonian Magazine about how it's harder and harder to remember things because technology is offloading everything. Or it could have become a book, which in, to a certain extent it did with our virtual shadow. But I looked at it and said, you know what? This needs to exist. And if if I don't do it, I don't know if it's going to happen. So it's something that I would use. I think it's something that my colleagues and friends would use. So let's do it. Let's make it happen. And so having that comfort level, when you have your core set and you're secure in what your core is, you can go all over the place. If someone had the opportunity or if I had an idea for doing a movie right now, I might do it. But that movie would probably have to be connected to one of those two cores that I have. And if I do that, then it makes it easy. And I think that makes it really a lot easier to, number one, to market your stuff. And number two, to gain trust in your audience or your readers or your customers. So when Cuddler came, you know, I was one of the three co-founders. It was a natural fit because number one, I had the entrepreneurial background, which so quote will kind of set me up for. But number two, it was about intimacy and technology. So when people were like, oh, you're serious about this. Like you're not just dabbling with so quotable. It wasn't a one-time thing. This is the second time. Then it's like, oh, but 
he's, you know, at this point I've done 18 books. At that time I did about 14 books and half of them had to do with technology and intimacy. So people were looking at the pedigree and saying, oh, okay, he's, he's a co-founder of this, but he's been studying intimacy technology for like a decade and a half. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. You know, it's like, all right, well, maybe, maybe I'll download this guy's app and see what's going on. Maybe he knows what he's doing, you know? And so there's a certain level of respect that you get, but beyond the respect, there's a certain amount of, of courage and a certain amount of insight that you're going to get if you decide to focus on, on one or two things. You blew up the whole system by moving from Silicon Valley, having all the connections that you had uh, when you started Color and still deciding to bootstrap the business. This is why I really admire what you do, <laughs> honestly, because you are kind of really practicing and doing what you preach in a sense. I mean, you are kind of owning your own destiny. And again, that's another played out cheesy word, business word, I know, but you are because you you bootstrapped it and ultimately you guys were acquired. Let's talk about Cuddler. You know, walk me through what made you decide to bootstrap it versus going the VC route or using some of the connections that you established in Silicon Valley when you did. Sure. That's a really good question. So it was myself, it was a co-founder, uh, Charlie Williams. And then there was also Jeff Kulak, who was an initial co-founder, still was a co-founder, but he ended up taking a, a smaller role in it. And so it was really me and Charlie that were running the show during the process. And there was a lot of conversation we actually had with VCs. And obviously I was, you know, I was talking to my network like crazy, obviously. <laughs> right? Right? I'm like, okay, I'm doing this. Okay. What, what the heck am I doing? You know, for the people I was close to, I was like, what the heck am I doing? Should I run with this? Oh my gosh, we're on the cover of this newspaper. What am I supposed to do with this? You know, I'm not going to pretend that it was, uh, you know, that I knew exactly what to do. It was a lot of learning every single day. Mm -hmm. um, but also too, from the, like you said, the VC and, and the versus bootstrapping thing, we talked to quite a few VCs and there were some that approached us and then some of them that, you know, were just in our network that we're cool with. And there were, there were two, two, two big, big reasons, I think, that we decided to do the bootstrapping route. First of all, there was nothing like Cuddler. With my, I have kind of a, not even as a compliment, but I just, I tend to have a pioneering spirit. Like if there's something new to be done and a new way to do it, then if it fits my core, then I'm going to go for it. Mm -hmm. That's just my personality. It's just, all right, let's take it to the next level. And so what attracted us to creating Cuddler was the same reason why VCs would be conservative with it because it was, it was unique. And so my big selling point for Cuddler, because my main, among other duties, I would probably be considered the COO of Cuddler um, and then also the CMO because I did the marketing for it. And as a COO, my main thing and the main vision, you might say, for, for it was that Facebook was about connecting with people you already know in a superficial way. And then Tinder, Grindr, a lot of that ilk was about connecting with strangers in an extremely intimate way. And then can we work with this gray area of connecting with people that you don't know in a non-sexual way? Still creating that intimacy. And Cuddler, as the name implies, was about connecting with people within your radius for a hug or a cuddle. And it's something, it was like this huge gray area. And the more we started researching and getting involved um, in, in launching Cuddler, the more excited I got. Because I realized there was this big space in there. And so if you're dealing with this big 
gray space as a journalist, as a researcher, as an entrepreneur, all those things that I am now, you're going to dive in and get really excited about it. If you're a VC that's investing, unless you have that same vision, you're not going to quite get it. And so that was, so finding, finding VCs, finding investment firms that understood the vision was, was difficult. What was funny about it is that they had to respect it because I, I can get into the metrics a little bit, but our numbers for a little app, our numbers were pretty crazy. And so it was, it was a lot of conversations like, wow, we don't get it, but you got a lot of users. What? Wait, we don't understand. And so it was a lot of, a lot of explanation as far as with culture. To be frank, we kind of started that wave and it wasn't until the wave started to crest out a little bit where those conversations started to heat up. And by then, you know, we were about to get acquired. Do you think your numbers took off right away because people initially maybe thought it was wholeheartedly uh, sexual in nature? You know, they were kind of trained by Tinder and some of these other apps to kind of have a hookup. So you were genuine in the sense that you created this app for people to cuddle and just kind of create a human-human intimacy experience but do you think somebody was going to bypass the system and be like, no, I know what they say this is, but it's totally going to be a hookup. Do you think that's why the numbers were big to begin with? Maybe initially. Sure. I, I would give I would give some some leeway to that. But there, there were kind of two things that made it really intense. First of all, we are catering to an audience. Well, let me start with the first one, the other one. First of all, the media, the amount of media attention we got was ridiculous. Mm hmm. And so we came out on September 18th. So yeah, a few years ago, we mm -hmm. came out September 18th. And by the next day, we were covered in Cosmopolitan, Glamour, um, Playboy, uh, The Stranger, which is a, a major newspaper up in, um, in Seattle. We were on MTV News, all these things. And that's then by a, that's that- That's unheard of unless you're doing Pokemon. Seriously, yeah, it was similar to that that type of vibe. And then by that evening, we were being talked about on the late night shows, like the real ones, like you know Jimmy Fallon mm -hmm. level. Mm -hmm. And it's like there's a new app called you know called Cuddler, blah blah, like totally part of the monologue. Which of course I lost my mind. I'm like, what is going on here? <laughs> you know. So the media attention was huge. So that was a really big part of how we got so many users so quickly. I think another big part was that people were curious. And, and I'll give you a little bit with that, with um, people not sure what to make of it. And I think that's, that could be a huge advantage. And that was a really big thing where it's like, this is something that's totally different. You know, there's a, certain, there's a certain conservatism that's in Silicon Valley. I think I can say this. I lived there for a little while and I have good friends that are up there. So mm -hmm. <laughs> some of them might not like, like me saying this. But there's a certain conservatism. There's a certain um, monotony where it would have been easier psychologically for us as founders to create a knockoff of Tinder, you know, and be like, okay, it's like Tinder, but you go and have, you go and eat something before you hook up, you know, it'll be easy to like, to, to pivot a little bit and say, <laughs> oh, it's, you know, it's, it's Uber for dogs, you know, that kind of thing. And there, <laughs> which actually is, isn't a bad idea. I, 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 I was just laughing off of the mic here. Cause I'm like, he might be onto something actually. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> I, I just need a co-founder. No, but, but you know, that, that kind of thing. And it was always, you know, it's 2016 now. 
If we flash back in 2014, it's funny, I'm just talking to you where I'm realizing how much times have changed. And in 2014, the prevailing thought when you talk to people in Silicon Valley, particularly VCs, they'd say, well, it'll be a lot easier if you said it's an Uber for foodies. It's a, um, it's a Twitter for sociopaths, you know, <laughs> whatever, like, you know, this plus X. Seriously, if you do a Google, and I implore the, the listeners to do it too, if you do a Google search on Uber for X, whatever, you'll find tons of articles from that period of time. So that was a prevailing thought. Cuddler required explanation. And so it will require a little bit of time. And luckily, to give myself credit for that, I think we marketed it really well. And so we kind of had a good, a good landing path for people. If they were curious about it, there was, there was documentation online. What we did as far as the launch was I had my, my connections in the journalism world because I've been you know, covering intimacy and technology. And I reached out to some of the most trusted people in covering that. And I said, hey, I'm, I'm doing this entrepreneurial thing now. I'm going to come out with this app. My co-founder actually came up with the idea and is doing the, the programming behind it. Let me know if you want to talk with him. You know, so I was very much like hands off. And I'm like, hey, you know, this is my co-founder. If you want to talk with him, cool. And everybody was very enthusiastic. And one person was like, yes, we want the exclusive on it. Mm-hmm. And so I ended up setting up a Q&A. They had a great Q&A for uh, salon.com, which is one of the major websites, uh, news websites up in Silicon Valley. And so we end up setting that up. Do you have people right. sign NDAs before you have these discussions with friends and stuff? I mean, because it, it does seem it was really unique. It was in a different position, color that uh, is. I, I see where you're going. Um, no, actually. No, no, we didn't. And, and I think that was part of the core thing. And there's like five different ways my brain is going as, as the reasoning behind that. But knowing the core of, of what you're about, number one, and if you know the core of what you're about, then even if someone tries to duplicate it, they really can't. So if someone else came out with Cuddler, it would have been a different product, even if they came out with the same service. So what I mean by that is my co-founder, Jeff, he did the art for Cuddler. And he has a particular art, artistic style that tends to be soft and inviting, as opposed to artists who tend to have more, more aggressive, aggressive aesthetic. My co-founder, Charlie, he actually was part of the team with Shazam, the music app. And he had left, left them to do his own thing because he had, um, he had moved out of the U.S. to the U.K. Again, you know, me having co-founders in different countries. And so he moved to the U.K. And so his programming style worked really well because he, was, he had gotten the discipline to know how to pick up on things with sound and with location and stuff like that, all those things that Shazam is known for. And then with myself... And by the time that, you know, that Cuddler came out, I had already did 14 books and half of them were about, you know, intimacy and technology. Mm -hmm. And then I've written for a lot of the major publications. So if someone else came out with Cuddler, unless they had that team, it wouldn't make much sense. And same thing with the marketing, which is the part I, I would take credit for where I could trust the people that I reached out to because I had built up relationships with them literally for, in some cases, for two decades. And so I could go ahead and say, hey, so-and-so, I'm working on this thing. It's super hush-hush. I'd be happy to give you an exclusive when we launch about a month from now. And to trust them to not run with it because we had built up our relationship. But that relationship was based on me knowing my core. Now, if I was doing an Uber, then it'd be a lot more difficult because I wouldn't know who to trust. I wouldn't know the subject. 
and then people wouldn't necessarily trust me. You know, I wouldn't have that depth. Mm-hmm. And I think that's why you really having one or two foci, foci I guess they call it foci, <laughs> is really, really important. And so no, no NDAs and we had no problems. It was cool. But also I knew who to trust and then who not to talk to. Mm-hmm. But that all came from the previous experience. I think that's why it's it's so crucial that people understand that they already have these unique skills that will make them a great entrepreneur. You know, there's no there's few other entrepreneurs who have 20 years as journalists. That's my unique gift. You have a unique gift because it's based on your life experiences and your experiences in your career before you start entrepreneurship. And so there's so many different ways that you can do it. And there's a certain beauty to that. No NDAs. We knew how to get it out to the press and, and that being really good feedback. You know, I'm really impressed by the story. Not, you know, and we'll, we'll talk a little bit beyond Cuddler here. For all the networks that you established with different people and you ultimately deciding to move from Silicon Valley. You know, one of the first things that kind of stuck out to me was that Silicon Valley, and I think there's a lot of truth to this, for all its innovation, for all its creation, it is kind of conservative in a sense that they are looking for, okay, Uber was created, show me the next Uber versus you bringing a new product and something totally new. And people are, you know, sometimes not afraid, but they don't know what to do with it. This is the difference, and you talked about this too, you've done it on Inc. and you've done different things like this, But and I want you to talk about this a little bit, but this is the difference between passion and persistence, where you say that passion is the compass for you in a sense to kind of drive you to where you want to go, but persistence ultimately will keep you pushing and keep you driving in spite of VCs saying, no, this doesn't make sense. I don't know if I want to put my money in right now. Talk about how the entrepreneurial community has gotten so wrapped up in passion and along the way, they missed a persistence. And you know that's the truth because people establish businesses and the first minute they get a couple of no's from people, they quit. Yes. It, they may not believe in it themselves necessarily. So talk about why those two are so key and so different. And it's okay that you have the child in the background because this will make total sense because <laughs> you are the bite-sized entrepreneur. <laughs> I was going to say, I was going to say, I can either, either mute you right now or whatever you no, want to do. <laughs> you know what? You know what's funny? We're going to keep that in because it only makes sense. I mean, you are, you, you're in it. You're in the flow. Let's do it. I am living bite-sized entrepreneurship right now. So (laughs) (laughs) you're in the moment. (laughs) I'm so glad you have four kids because I don't have to explain anything to you. You don't have to feel a lot more secure. You don't have to explain one thing. You don't know how many times I've been in this situation (laughs) and beyond, Damon. It's all good, man. Trust me. I have to give a shout out to my wife because I'm so glad I'm not. I was I've I've been the primary caretaker, but I'm so glad I'm not on my own. So especially with two kids, it's it's a wonderful thing. I have to agree. I mean, if I've been on interviews and talked about stuff, I always big up my wife for the exact same reason. I mean, you know, people are always <laughs> wanting to talk to me about business and hey, how did you do this? At the end of the day, and I'm being very honest with you, she won't even hear this. So I'm not blowing smoke. I wouldn't be who I am without her in this realm. Wow. Yeah. And That's it's a beautiful thing. Yeah, it's very, very true. I, I mean, we've been together 20 years, so she's everything to me. Um, wow. Talk about the difference between passion and persistence. What's funny is that if I do a, a quick step back, I realize that the muscle, and I call persistence a muscle. Mm-hmm. So the muscle of persistence goes way, way back for me. So 
I've always been freelance journalist. I've never been a staff writer. And so that means that every day, as they say, in the more harsh worlds, you eat what you kill. <laughs> so if I don't work, then there's no money coming in. And so that's been the space that I've been in for, again, almost two decades now. And so it's a matter, when you're a freelance writer, it's a matter of sending pitches to different publications. And initially, you don't get any response. So then you kept, keep sending other pitches. And then you'll get a no which is great because then that means that you're being acknowledged mm -hmm. and they might give you feedback on what's wrong with it. And then you start getting yeses because now they know your name. And then based on that yes, that might give you a clip or some insight that's better, that gets you to a better publication or get you to the next thing you're going to do. The book business is the same thing. For, um, for Porn and Pong, my first major book, I worked on it for five years and I was still in my 20s. So five years is a really long time. <laughs> at that time. <laughs> Not so much now, um, but at the time it was, it was a really long time. So I spent five years on it. I went through two different agents. Um, so I had to fire one and all this other drama and so forth. And I think I had gotten, I want to say 47 rejections for it, you know, which is, which is even a lot for, for the book industry. And then I finally got a yes and ended up being the perfect publisher for it, you know, but it, that took five years of persistence and of course, learning how to write well in a long form format and all that stuff. And so what I'm saying is that I didn't realize it, but the previous professions that I've had were preparing me for to get, to get VCs say, I have no idea what this app is about, or to have customers say, or potential customers say, wow, no one's going to use this app. That doesn't make any sense. You know, and then of course, 11 months later, we get acquired, mm -hmm. you know, and a lot of apps do not get acquired. They just go away. You know, and so it's like, oh, well, we were right. But it takes trusting that vision. And that's where the persistence comes from. People are passionate about stuff all the time. They might see a person walking down the street and say, wow, they are gorgeous. I'm really passionate about that person. And then they go about their day, you know, and it's nothing. You could be really into something that you're eating and say, oh, my gosh, this is so I'm so passionate about this particular food and the meal's gone and, and whatever. You might have a hobby that you hear about or something that you hear about and it turns into a hobby and you might do that hobby and be really excited about it for a few months and then it wanes. Like I, I am and I compare passion to love. Mm -hmm. Being in love with someone that can go away or that could fade and then come back stronger in certain certain aspects. But the idea of having a commitment of showing up every day, as as Oprah and Brene Brown and other folks say, when you show up every day. That's something different to say that you're really passionate about something, your friends are excited about it, or when the idea sounds amazing in your head, but you haven't done any work yet. <laughs> that's easy. Mm -hmm. That's really easy. That's like the nature of humanity. Mm -hmm. If there wasn't passion, nothing would start. It's, it's like the spark, but you need the wood. You need the, the gasoline. You need the charcoal. You need something to sustain it. Otherwise, it's just going to be a spark. And when the wind blows the wrong way, it's gone. And people keep on mistaking passion for purpose. And the two very different things. When I talk about me wanting to inspire people to find or create entrepreneurship within their current lifestyle, that's a passion of mine, but it's also a purpose. And perhaps the purpose thing, the best way to describe it and the persistence, maybe it's about having something that's beyond you and beyond your own desire. When I talk about showing people how technology can connect us, that's something I'm really excited about. And I love being a mouthpiece for it, but it really has to do with improving other people's lives.
you know, when we were working on, on Cuddler and the lifestyle I was talking about where I was waking up at 3.15 and, and working till six, that applied to Cuddler as well. You know, my son had just turned one and then Cuddler was out. And then we were, again, on, on MTV and late night shows by the end of that week. It came out on a Thursday. By the end of that week, you know, we, we were on all the late night shows, part of the monologues and all that stuff. That's insane. Um, yeah, a week later, on my birthday's in late September. And I remember it was on my birthday. And exactly a week later, we were number one in the app store. And we had 100,000 plus users and 10,000 cuddles were completed. Insane for a week. That's you know, and it's just three, you know, three first-time entrepreneurs um, on three different continents just working together. You know, But the thing is that we had faith that this, or at least particularly for me, since I'm, I was the culture guy, I had faith that this is the direction that things were going to go. All that intensity had to be managed within my 15-hour-a-week schedule. And the only way I could get through that is if I was working towards something higher. And my two higher things were, one, having something that created a sense of pride and legacy Mm. for my child. And not even from an ego standpoint, like, you know, Simba, this is your kingdom type of thing, right? (laughs) it 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 wasn't even that deep, you know? But it was that sense of, this is how you prioritize your life. And if you're really into something, you do what you have to do to make that happen. And if you're not really into something, you'll find every single excuse not to do it. And I can say that to my son and, you know, he's well into, into toddlerhood now. So I can explain that to him. He'll understand every word that I say. And he's a fairly smart kid. So he'll probably reply to me. He'd be like, yes, dad. Okay. But I don't have to tell him that because I, I, I was and am living that. And that is the biggest thing. I'm like, I need to pass this on to him. Yes. Like, this is, this is what I believe in. This is how I lived my life so far in 30 plus years. He needs to see this. And so whether he decides to be a janitor at a high school or become the next Elon Musk, doesn't matter. It's, it's the same thing, same principle, basic stuff. This is a major key. This is a rule. There's, there's no way around that. You know, again, the passion versus persistence. So that was number one. That's what got me up in the morning. It's like, number one, that. But number two, as the app moved forward, Charlie was initially in charge of communicating with the users because it was usually technical issues. And then as we kind of grew into our roles and I got more responsibility as a co-founder, then I started taking on the user conversations. And we were getting dozens, maybe a couple hundred emails a day, not exaggerating, every single day. Wow. Yeah. And I was like, Gary Vanderchuk or someone like that, where I was like, okay, we're going to reply to everyone. Seriously, it's like, we're going we're gonna, to we're gonna try to do this. Because if our brand and our responsibility is to facilitate intimacy, again, we're not Uber, we're not Lyft, you know, we're not Amazon, where you know, they'll keep you on hold or whatever. It's like, no, our whole job is to connect people. Good point. So we got to connect with people. And so I'm talking people through stuff. People are at least an email I'm, I'm pretty good with words. In email, it sounded like they were in tears because our app suddenly crashed before they were going to make a connection. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> just technology. You know, it wasn't, even, it wasn't even our app. It's just, that's just the way technology works. And I'm talking them through it. But also on my end, there's nothing I can do about it because those connections are based on location. And so if those people have moved on, 
you don't know who it was unless you happen to be in the same location again. So there's something transient about it too, unless you make the connection and then you can, you, you could have saved uh, that person's name in your file. But anyway, every morning I'm getting these emails. And if I sleep an extra hour, if I say, you know what, I don't want to do this today, then there are people that are missing connections. Then the whole purpose of our app, and we're saying we're co-founders, the whole purpose of our app, we're missing that. We're missing our mission. That's our mission is to connect people. And if I'm not helping people connect and there's an issue and, I, and my name's on it, that's on me. And that's an awful way to be a co-founder. Mm. So there's a high level of responsibility that I had. And I think because I interviewed so many founders and spent so much time in Silicon Valley and I met founders who I believed truly cared about their customers and I met, met some that just wanted to IPO one day. And so I knew what kind of founder I wanted to be. So by the time, well, you know, well into, well into age and also well into my time in the tech world, by the time I became a founder, I took it very seriously because I knew what I wanted to be and what I didn't want to be. So those two things, you know, again, my, my son and then responsibility to the public, those two things drove me. You know, those things created the persistence. Now, was I passionate about the product? Definitely. Did I think it served a niche? 100%. But that passion, when I'm up at 3.15 and I'm trying to calm down my kid who's screaming and I got like 100 emails sitting there waiting for me and they all need a response. You know, I got the you know, Wall Street Journal calling for an interview and this other stuff. That's, passion is not going to sustain you. It's going to go away because it's going to be up and down. But persistence though, persistence and purpose, those will, those will hold you down. And you need to know Sorry, really going to get out of the soapbox for a minute. But no, please. Before you, before you start anything, you really need to know why you're doing it. Like, you really need to know. If we didn't have, as they used to say, if we didn't have our minds right, and we jumped into the sun, you know, we launched with what we consider an MVP, though it was decent, but we launched with a, you know, the minimal viable product just to see if people were going to like it. We set up the media as well as we could. And we only did salon.com, you know, with the exclusive interview. And we had our own article that was on medium.com. And medium.com had just launched around that time. And so we did it on that just because we wanted to express ourselves and explain what the app was before it came out. Those are the only two media things we did. We're all essentially first-time entrepreneurs because So Quotable was, was a cult thing. And it did really well within the tech community and within the journalist community, but it never really blew up, which was fine. So this was really my first serious entrepreneurial step. So there was no reason to, th- and it's a, it's, it was a strange app. So there was no reason to think it would blow up. And it blew up like huge. And then we ended up having clones that were similar to Cuddler that were coming out. We had people who were setting up like the equivalent of massage places, but towards cuddles. And so there was a whole crop industry that came with that. Like all this stuff happened after we came out. By the end of the year, uh, I mentioned the Wall Street Journal. We were on the cover of the Wall Street Journal uh, during the week of CES that January, and they were talking about the cuddling industry. And we had started a lot of that. We had no idea that we were going to blow up. All I'm saying is that if we didn't know what our purpose was, and we didn't know how to be persistent, and if it really mattered, if we were just doing it just to do it, we would have imploded. No one can handle that kind of pressure and not have their core together. That's what I talk about in the, the Bite Size Entrepreneur book series. And, you know, when I, again, with, with interviews like now and stuff like that, that's one of the biggest things I talk to people about is it doesn't matter how much time you spend with entrepreneurship. You know, I did, I got the app acquired 
I spent 15 hours a week. So it's not about, about the amount of time. People get confused about that. They think that if I do 80 or 100 hours a week working on this app, working on this service, it's going to succeed. Time does not equal quality time. Totally. Right? And so it's about efficiency. It's about focus, about knowing what you're, knowing what you're doing. I had parameters like a family and other things that said, you have to be really focused during these 15 hours. So whatever your parameters are, being focused within those. It's not about, um, about the amount of time. It's not ab- about following a trend and saying, oh, this is hot right now. Because nobody was talking about cuddling, really, when we came out. It's not even a, ma- a matter of that. It's about knowing this higher purpose, knowing this focus, this thing that you really care about, that you're willing to sacrifice your free time, if it's a side hustle, your free time with. And once you have that established, then you have everything you need to move forward. But you could have a million dollars. You could, you could have all the time in the world. You can have all this equipment. But if you don't have your purpose together, it's, it's just not going to work. But do, the reverse, though, is possible. Do you think people are losing the purpose and focus primarily because there is so much information out there? You know, on the one hand, Damon, I mean, it's great that we have so much information. People can learn how to design their own apps and create stuff even before they take any kind of class. I mean, you don't necessarily have to go out to the library anymore like I used to in Barnes Barnes and Noble and just soak up everything there. I mean, you could literally stay at home, sit in a room for eight hours and learn how to do JavaScript relatively decent within 24 hours. But do you think there's so much information? It's also killing people's creativity because they are inundated and they think they have to run from one end to another. And it's just... I mean, you're look, we went through a lot of your experience here and we're we're going to get into the books. And I, I think this is kind of leading into the Bite Size Entrepreneur and talking about the Bite Size Entrepreneur from a productive standpoint. But do you think with all the information out there and all the books people have to buy and all these other things that people have, it's just killing their sense of creativity because they have to feel like they have to be at every conference. They have to be in front of every Gary Vaynerchuk and everybody else. What's your take on just being in a noisy entrepreneurial world? I would actually split what you're saying in two. I would say yes and no. Um, I would say things are too easy right now. So it's extremely easy to go on to Wix.com and set up a website for an app that you haven't even thought that you might want to do. You're thinking, well, I think I want to do this because this is a hot thing right now. Let me set up a website. Let me do an email. Let me set up a Twitter account. Let me go and do all these things. Um, let me go ahead and learn, like you said, JavaScript. I'll go to Code Academy or something like that. No disrespect to Code Academy, but go to one of those guys, learn it within a week, knock it out. And then so you're doing, in the Bite Size Entrepreneur, I have a chapter called Going Public. And, and it's, not about, it's not about IPOs, um, but it's about how um, the danger of wanting the success or wanting the accolades, which I think is even more dangerous, wanting the accolades, wanting the props, wanting to be part of a community when you haven't paid your dues yet. And when I say paying your dues, I don't mean the 80-hour work weeks or anything like that. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about paying dues as far as having thought as far as what your purpose is. So an g- example I give back to my writing thing is that there are some amazing writers, writers out there or people who want to be writers. I will see them on Twitter and they will say, I'm working on my novel and I had a good day writing today. And it's like, yeah, I had another good day writing today. And then they'll be sharing stuff about writing. And then they'll share books that they've read about writing. 
absolutely no disrespect to them, but the conversations that are happening are actually the time that's being spent not writing. And so it's a matter of saying, I want to talk about this stuff. I want to be part of this entrepreneurial community. I want to go to these conferences. I want to absorb all these things. I want to be part of the Silicon Valley scene, but I haven't done the work. That quiet time, that thoughtfulness to find out why exactly I want to be an entrepreneur. Why exactly do I want to create this app? Why exactly am I sacrificing or want to sacrifice my time to do this? I haven't thought about it. I just want to be part of this scene. I want this feeling. I have a friend from way back in the day who uh, wanted to be a, a concert pianist. And uh, this is back in college that I knew him. So it must have been in high school where he realized that he absolutely loved the piano, but it was at a certain point where either he had to sacrifice everything to learn piano and then become one of the best, or he had to let it go and just enjoy the concert. And he decided to let it go. He went to a different direction. He's totally happy now. But some of us never get to that point. Some of us actually don't realize that we like the scene of it, the feel of it, but we actually don't want to create. And I think that's the biggest challenge for people today is that there's so many things that are enticing you to start creating when you haven't really thought about what you want to create. I know a lot of folks who want to go ahead and be an entrepreneur or be a consultant, but they don't exactly know why. It just sounds good. So I think that's the danger is that the barriers to entry are so low right now. I could go ahead and I can hang up with you, decide that I want to get involved with, I don't know, something that I'm not involved with now, throw up a website by the end of the day and then start handing out business cards. It's so easy to get started. And like you said, I'm guessing we're around the same age. So I'm of a little bit of a different generation where when I started freelance writing, I had to go to the library. Mm-hmm. When I wanted to like my, my, um, my ideal publication when I first started 20 years ago was Smithsonian Magazine. And I, I was living in Chicago at the time because I went to Northwestern. So I would go to my local library and I'd go through the last 12 issues of Smithsonian. And I just, I, that's how I'd spend Saturday mornings or whatever. And then I'd write them a pitch and then I'd send it by mail. And that was the process. And not saying that that process is better. What I am saying is that there were, I don't know, hundreds of other journalists who want to do the same thing that I wanted to do, but they weren't willing to put in the work to be there every Saturday morning. Mm. And so that weeded that right out. There are things that I really wanted to do, but once I got into that heavy part of the process, I was like, nah, I'm not going to do this. <laughs> I'm not going to, this isn't me. No, this isn't me. I'm, there's something else I can do. And so I, and I'm happy to admit that because there needs to be some type of there needs to be some type of process, whether it's an external process, as far as the difficulty of getting a copy of Smithsonian Magazine, because they were really expensive at the time, you know, or the, the difficulty of setting up a website, which is why you have so many websites right now. But, you know, as I'm really into hip hop, and as uh, DJ Premier once said, you have a lot of popcorn rappers today. You know, they're like microwave. They like they pop out of nowhere and they go away just as fast. We definitely are from the same generation. I know for sure because I'm into hip hop and I know who DJ Premier is. And I bet there's not a lot of people <laughs> that know. who. DJ, well, not a lot of people who don't know, but um, the millennials, let's say, know DJ Premier. I, w- I would hope so. Yeah. Yeah. I wish we could spend like 10 minutes talking about DJ Premier, but I know we have more pressing stuff to talk oh, man. about. <laughs> I, you know, I, c- I could I could go with you round for round. You know, one of the things I like 
you have a quote out. I, I just want to cover your books just real briefly. So you have The Bite Size Entrepreneur that's out right now on Amazon. I highly suggest people go out, check it out. You have The Productive Bite Size Entrepreneur, which is coming out September 26th, but it's available for pre-sale. I highly suggest people check that out. I read it this week. I know people in high places, so I got the book. I was able, <laughs> I was able to read it. <laughs> uh oh! I got a, I got a leak. I got a leak. <laughs> I got a leak. Um, but one of the statements that you've made, and this is where I want to kind of encourage these entrepreneurs because people are looking for that area of saying, "Yes, how do I remain persistent and all that stuff?" It you kind of hit it right on the head where it's like sometimes you have to do what people don't want to do to get what they got, which is a big quote out there. Um, but wow. a quote that you said that I think is really really good is. The belief that you have to sacrifice your livelihood to leave your entrepreneurial mark is a lie. So we talked about legacy. This is a very powerful quote to me that I read. I think you said it on Inc. or somewhere, but I pulled it off your website. A lot of people do believe that they have to sacrifice their life you know, because they think working 100 hours a week is being productive. They think that you know they have this grandiose idea in their mind that if they want to be part of the community, as you were talking about, they have to give up everything and do all this other stuff. You are the epitome of the bite-sized entrepreneur. So from a production standpoint, because you have a family like I do, you are the person to write these books. I mean, you're in the middle of it. You created businesses. We talked about Cuddler. We talked about Swagkotable. We talked about all these other things that you've done. What are some things that you want us to pull from being the productive bite-sized entrepreneur? What are some key elements that you think an entrepreneur can take away from this podcast today and say, that made sense to me? What, what are things that you've delved into the book that I may not have heard as an entrepreneur that I can take away today to say, Yep, that's that's what I need to work on for me to be more productive. The theme, like you said, for the bite-sized entrepreneur, the original one, is that the belief that you have to sacrifice everything to make your entrepreneurial mark mm-hmm. is a myth. Mm-hmm. It's a lie. With the productive bite-sized entrepreneur, the second in the series, my main thing is productivity is a marathon or a cycle, even, not a sprint. And you're not going to be productive every day. Those two things. So in other words, when I tend to, to be an extremist, that's another reason why I can write these books, because <laughs> I, I've been to both ends. Um, I tend to be an extremist. So when I get excited about an idea, it is, my first instinct is to do all-nighters and to put everything else aside. Again, the passion part. I'm a passionate person, so I'm ready to go in. And what I found in Silicon Valley, and I talk about this particularly in The Bite Size Entrepreneur, is again, like I had a colleague and friend who disappeared, totally burnt out, relatively young person too. And there were a lot of people like that because they believe that you have to be productive every single day. You have to crush it every single day. The human body doesn't work like that. Mm-hmm. I don't care if you're 20, you're 40, you're 60, you're 80. It doesn't work like that. Your brain doesn't work like that. You will burn yourself out. It might take a month. It might take a day. It might take five years. It doesn't matter. There's going to be a certain point where you're going to be in the middle of the ocean and you're going to have no idea where you are. It's just the way it works, mm-hmm. you know. And even the the most successful entrepreneurs of our time, you know, the the Steve Jobs, uh, he's like a, a a really highly recommended example. If you look at the course of his life, he had to come back to earth, you know. So even genius like that, he had to come back to earth and say, "Wow, I need to." reconnect with my estranged daughter. <laughs> you know, I need to actually have life balance. 
I've actually been a jerk to most people over the course of these 30 years. Maybe I need to calm down. Maybe I'm wrong some of the time. All those different things. And so if you look at him, an entrepreneur that, that most of us have looked up to, you know, for this generation of Silicon Valley, even he was like, I need to slow down. And so it's not a matter of saying, I'm going to stop, but a matter of saying, I'm, there's a certain cycle to my productivity and I'm going to respect it. In the productive bite-sized entrepreneur, I call the cycle of pursuing, doing, and renewing. So three steps. So pursuing is kind of that passion period where you're really interested in looking into something. You want to see if something works. It's like the pre-development stage of whatever you're into. So you're doing a lot of, a lot of uh, testing and seeing where things are going to go. The doing part is when you're actually in it. You're, um, if you're talking about an app, then you're talking with the press. The app is out. Everything's on fire. You're moving everything. You're just trying to keep up with what's going on. And the renewing part, which always happens, is the quiet period where you go and you take in everything that you've learned, everything you experienced, and maybe pick up on some of the things that you missed as you're on the roller coaster ride. And then it starts over again. And I found this from my own experience. I had uh, the pre-launch period, the summer of 2014 for Cuddler, that was our pursuing period. We're like, okay, well, let's test this idea, that idea. Let's send out, send out a little beta to a few people that we trust. Let's get some of the kinks out. Do you think this idea will work? Well, maybe if we pivot this way or that way, okay, I think we got it. And then obviously on launch day in September, then it was doing. And we stayed in that doing phase. For, it felt like forever. You know, it just... But we had a popular app, which is, you know, def definitely um, a double-edged sword. And so we were going. And then what's so funny is that Cuddler got acquired at the end of July, uh, beginning of August. And then things got really quiet for me in a good way. And all of a sudden, it was just me hanging out with my son. And shortly after that, we found that we were pregnant with the next one. So I was enjoying that. And... And I was doing a little bit of journalism again. And I started my ink column because I talked with ink and they were really curious about my experiences with Cuddler. So that, so the, the ink column, which is called a sane success, that ended up being essentially the genesis of the Bite Size Entrepreneur series, because I had no intention of doing these books. And I was working on this column, doing it anywhere from one a week to several a week, depending on how the flow was. And the feedback was so good. And the thesis of the column was, is it possible to be a passionate, strong entrepreneur without destroying your health or ruining your relationship? Period. That was the thesis. And so every single column, if you almost every single column, if you read it, and I have um, a few hundred on there now because it's been uh, running for just over a year. If you go on to, to ink.com and look me up, there's like almost all of them fit into that theme. And as I started to work on those columns, then then that's what, where the Bite Size Entrepreneur series came from. I realized there was a pattern there and, and all those things. And so working on that, pursuing, doing, and renewing ended up being really helpful for me because there are lessons that I learned from that roller coaster ride of Cuddler that just hit me like in June, that hit me in May, like months after we got acquired and I had nothing else to do with Cuddler, suddenly these things would dawn on me. And so I think it's important to have that space. One of the things I talk about in the Bite Size Entrepreneur Series is that it's important to pause and reevaluate what you're doing and to stop so you understand what exactly just happened. Mm. Because if you've been going nonstop for five years, 
and you haven't put any thought into where you are or where you want to go, then your mission, your business plan, whatever you want to call it, is still based on what you believed five years ago, right? Because you, you haven't revised anything. You haven't given yourself time to revise. And so if you don't give yourself time to revise anything, then it's 2016, you're thinking exactly how you were and having the same goals that you had in 2011, mm. which is scary. That's but powerful. people do that all it's true. People do it all the time. They say, no, I can't afford to stop. No, I got to keep going. No, no, I got to hustle every day. I, I can't strategize right now. But, but what's the point of that? You know, and so I, I mean, I can't, my goals in 2011 were so narrow compared to where I am now, <laughs> you know, and not even a, a this to my former self, just a lot's changed in five years, mm -hmm. particularly in my life, because personally and professionally, things have been awesome and crazy. But if I was going on my 2011 goals, I, I don't know where I'd be. But the, but the reason why I have these strategies, the reason why this book series is able to come out, you know, Cuddler didn't exist five years ago. So Quotable didn't exist five years ago. I didn't call myself an entrepreneur five years ago. All these things just happened. And with all that rapid development that you know, us that are connected to Silicon Valley, all that rapid development and iteration that we say we love, you know, if you follow the lean startup model with Eric Reese and with, um, with Steve Blank, it really is about getting the MVP out, getting feedback, and then revising it. Why wouldn't we be doing the same thing in our lives? Mm. Why wouldn't we go in and say, I'm going to work on something. I'm going to get it out there and the doing part, I'm going to get it out there and then I'm going to renew it. Then I'm going to, I'm going to think about it and then do it again. Why wouldn't we apply that same thing to our personal and professional lives? That's the part that confuses me. And that's, that's why this book series, I had to do it. I, I've seen too many of my colleagues and friends burn themselves out. I've seen too many people say, crush it every day. You're not going to crush it every day. True. You can have the goal of crushing it every day. That's fine. But you also have the, have the realism. You know, it's like saying that I'm going to, it's like being in school and saying, I'm going to get an A in every single class. That's a great, that's a great aim to have. Good. Aim high. Do your thing. You might be valedictorian. Beautiful. But, but more, more than likely, you're going to have some B's in there. You might even have some C's. Oh, don't bring back make... the memories, Damon. I mean, <laughs> my, my father <laughs> so, yelling at me is so clear in my ear. Please don't do it to me. I just, I've had many therapists talk to me. At, no, I'm just, I'm joking around. Oh, okay. No, All right. I'm, I'm totally joking. <laughs> okay. What inspires you today? I mean, you, you are so clear on who you are and what you're doing, which is inspiring to me, but what inspires you? That's a really good question. I think there's quite a few things, but the main thing is, is making a positive impact based on the tools that I have. And I think there's a couple, couple layers to it. I'll try not to get too, too deep. No, no, go ahead. But the, um, when I was younger and being an African-American boy of the 70s, it was very much about you making, <clears throat> or me, I should say, me making a social, a social impact. Like, what are you going to contribute to this world? Mm -hmm. And I thought that I had to be a politician or a lawyer, which I still love law, but a politician or a lawyer or something like that. Because I, I really liked art and creativity and obviously technology, which had a much smaller role in our world when I was younger. But I, I love those things. But 
people in general don't talk about artists making a revolutionary impact. The ones that, that do, you can count them on one or two hands. People that say, oh, yeah, you know, this person made a revolutionary impact. But it's, but it's pretty rare. And so what I learned, and, I, and I'm sure some mentors told me that, including my parents, was that you should be the very best you you can be. And you doing, pursuing, again, your passion and being persistent about it and using your skills to the maximum, your talent, your creativity, your curiosity to the maximum, that in itself is making an impact. Not only as far as a direct impact with, in my case, the books that I write and stuff like that. And I appreciate the compliments you gave me earlier as far as impacting you and other folks, but also the indirect impact of showing the same thing I was talking about with my son, where me being able to express to him that, you know, I was, I was getting up super early in the morning because not only did I prioritize spending time with you during your first year, but also I wanted to make sure that I made an impact on other people too. And that required me sacrificing some things mm-hmm. and they were both important to me. So I did what I had to do to make that happen. So it's not just the direct impact of things as far as what we create, what we do, but also being a representation of something. So that being that representation of being me being the best Damon Brown that I can be, that in itself might inspire other people to be the best that they can be too. And so I think that's kind of the core of the passion where it's like, let me do what I do to the maximum. And that's being as great of a father as I can be. That's being as excellent of an author as I can be. That's being as creative of an entrepreneur as I can be. And there's um, a new book out called Unmistakable by Srini Rao. And I was on his podcast, The Unmistakable Creative, about two or three years ago, talking about our virtual shadow. And that was right before he blew up. So it was, I feel kind of kind of um, <laughs> kin to him. So I'm like, oh man, like, I was on your podcast when it was smaller. And now it's like, it's huge. You know, but he has a, a new book that just came out a couple months ago called uh, Unmistakable. And the artist that he uses, who also did the cover of the book, his name is Mars Dorian, I think. So Mars, like the planet, and I believe it's D-O-R-I-A-N. He has this amazing quote from Mars Dorian. He says, I want my art to be so distinctive, I don't need to put my name on it. <sighs> like even today, like I, I, I heard that quote from, from Srini like months ago, and it still gives me chills. That's that mission. That's that passion right there. There's anyone who knows me and then saw Cuddler would say that's something that Damon would co-found. Anyone that knows me and then reads Our Virtual Shadow says, oh yeah, I get it. Anyone who reads Porn and Pong and then meets me says, oh, I see, I see it. No one can duplicate that. You know? And so that's what I mean by fulfilling that passion with persistence, with purpose. Once those things are together and you have that core together, you, you can't be duplicated. One, one quick anecdote. Um, Porn and Ponga came out. That was my biggest book at at that time. And so that's what I was most known for. And about a year and a half later, because I went on book tour and and that's a whole whole different story, but that was another bootstrapped effort because I put myself across the country. (laughs) Lots of crowd, lots of uh, couch surfing, you know, but that was, that was a lot of fun. And that was kind of a, a early, kind of an early test run for entrepreneurship, but I didn't realize it at the time. But anyway, the book came out in 2008, around 2010. So a little bit after the, the book came out, it was, I was starting to get involved with other projects. I got a random tweet and uh, I was really into Twitter at the time. I still am, but I was 
kind of at my peak at the time. And it was a random tweet from a stranger. And they said, hey, Damon, I think so, someone just rewrote your, your book and just put it into an article. Mm-hmm. And I was like, well, what? That doesn't make any sense. And they, they did a link and then they also tagged the other person. I was like, whoa, what is going on here? So I go and click on it. And sure enough, this uh, a person had taken, I think it was like the first chapter or one of the chapters from the book, changed a couple words and then just put it in there almost verbatim. <laughs> I bring that up, not from a sense of bitterness, because that's kind of the age we're in. And the, the guy ended up uh, either taking it down or, or I can't even remember what happened. So it was, it was several years ago, but ended up getting resolved. But my point is, is that I didn't have to worry about someone taking my stuff. I didn't have to worry about, you know, watching my back and making sure that everything was secure. I had people that identify with my work so strongly, they're going to tell me when other people are taking it. Wow, that's good. See what I'm that's saying? That's totally like, cool. Yes. It's, it's like the, the proverbial Verizon man where I got people behind, you know, I got a bunch of people behind me. Like, Although Sprint, so Sprint now has taken that guy. <laughs> Not, right, well, now I'm, I'm dating myself. Um, he, he'll always be the Verizon guy. I don't he, know what he's doing. He will. He will. He's just, Monday. he's running after money right now. That, that oh, whore. I hope, I hope they pay him well. Um, <laughs> right. Because I think that's the only money he's getting when, when it comes to that. If he's going to, if he's going to do that as a spokesman, it's like. Your word is your bond. No, one, no um, one's going to trust you again. That you better exactly. Yeah. <laughs> but, but my whole point is that there's so many reasons why you should know what your purpose is, and then once you know what your purpose is and you push it as hard as you can, then you don't have to worry about people stealing your thunder because they can't. They can't. Like no one else can be another Damon. It's not possible. You know, even if someone else tried to write Porn and Pong or the Bite Size Entrepreneur series, or whatever. No one's experienced what I experienced. And that's one of the reasons why I, I try to do a level of honesty in the series. And now a lot of that started with the ink column, where I was putting it all, all out there. I have, um, I have one ink column called the uh, emotional skills necessary to, to, to sell your company. And I had a, it's just a, a short, honest 500 word piece about what it was like to sell Cuddler and the emotional intelligence necessary to get through it. Because we have this, idealized thing where it's like, oh, I'm going to create something. I'm going to break my back on it. And then I'm going to sell it right away. And it's like, no, there's a loss. There's a bittersweetness there that needs to be processed. And I didn't realize, as much as I talk about emotional intelligence and read books on emotional intelligence and try to practice high emotional intelligence, I, you know, when we sold the company, it was like going, you know, right. The, the popular saying today, it's like going, going zero to a hundred real quick. And Real yeah. quick, right? Exactly. Recently, I saw someone saying the opposite. It's like a hundred to zero, real quick, <laughs> and that's exactly what it was like. Where it was just like suddenly slamming on the brakes, and if you don't have your stuff together, you're going through the windshield. And so I talk about that in the column. But there's a, there's a high level, ideally a high level of honest, at least with my standards, a high level of honesty that I try to have with the book series to say that there's no such thing as a perfect entrepreneur. You're going to have bad days. You're not meant to be productive every single day. There's certain times if you're tired or you're not, you're having a procrastinating or you're not having a, a mental breakthrough right now, then maybe your mind needs to process something. And then that'll make the idea stronger when you come back to it the next day. You know, there's, a, there's so much pressure that we put on ourselves to be perfect, to go ahead and crush it every day, to go ahead and say, I'm going to start this company. It's going to go wild and then it's going to get sold. I mean, and I think that kind of goes back to something you talked about earlier, where if you end up, um, if you end up starting something and you think it's going to get acquired, if you start something and you think it's going to be worth 
a billion dollars, how long are how long are you going to be patient? Mm-hmm. Do you understand mm-hmm. what's going to happen when that when that first sign that it might not work? What are you going to do then? What are you going to do then? You got to make sure you know why you're doing it. If we were trying to create Cuddler to get acquired to make a little bit of money, Cuddler would have been a totally different product. I'll tell you that. Damon, I could talk to you for a day and more. I mean, you are probably for me, and I, I've said this offline. I'll say it online. Probably one of my most inspiring guests that I've had. Wow, thank just, you. Uh, just because of so many diverse things that you talk about. And I'm totally about intimacy and tech because I think in some strange, odd way, we've become a social, a much more social society online, but we're introverts in so many aspects. And it's robbed us of genuine, true human interaction. And I love people that delve into the psychology of intimacy and tech and how to still remain human while you you do this and you build businesses. And look, I would highly suggest the people that are listening to this to go out and look at TEDx Jackson and his TED speech about the positive power of observation. All of the different topics and content that you create, Damon, is amazing. You know, like the the example or not the example, but the the real life situation where you talked about writing for Playboy and Family Circus, the diversity in your writing and the content that you put out is so true to form. Uh, to your point, you know, there's not a lot of people that talk about intimacy and tech. And I think if I could see your writing without you even putting by Damon Brown in there anywhere. I, I think, you know, this has just been amazing for me, uh, the conversations that we've had. And I love all of the insight that you've given. Before we close here, can you share anything that you're working on now? Or I know we have the upcoming book, The Productive Bite Size Entrepreneur, which will be released on Amazon on the 26th. Is there anything else that you'd like to share if somebody wants to get in contact with you or, you know, kind of read some of your other writings? How can they do that? What would you like to share with them? So the the main hub is DamonBrown.net. I'm, I am still very active on Twitter, and that's Brown Damon. Um, so B-R-O-W-N-D-A-M-O-N. Ditto for Facebook, because I have a Facebook page as well. There's a few things that I'm doing that are, that are interesting and are kind of on the horizon. Can't quite talk about them yet. And so right now, the focus is really on the Bite Size Entrepreneur series. And it's a lot of stuff that I want to pass on to other people who believe that because they have other things that they care about in their life, that they have some type of restrictions as far as what they do. You know, as my as my son speaks in the background, <laughs> how symbolic. Mm-hmm. Um, so, so that's a really big part of it. One of the things that I'm doing with the Bite Size Entrepreneur series is looking at the different ways that we can have grabbable, actionable traits, a skill set, a toolbox. People who aren't quite entrepreneurs yet can grab it and they can prepare themselves because you really have to get prepared. Mm-hmm. Uh, you have to kind of get in the right mindset. And so what I'm doing is taking that and putting it into as many different ways as possible to spread the message. So the original Bite Size Entrepreneur, that's available on Kindle. That's available on paperback. That's available on audiobook. <laughs> I'm sorry, my son wants pancakes. <laughs> so the Bite Size Entrepreneur is available on, um, on audiobook, on Kindle, on paperback. Um, I also do talks related to the Bite Size Entrepreneur through something called GenieCast. 
And GenieCast actually allows you to do virtual, virtual speaking engagements. And so if you like my TED Talks, then I can actually come and speak to your organization and go from there. And that's through a virtual medium, which is totally amazing and different. Um, and then finally, I have a, um, a class on Teachable. And that's taking the core ideas of the bite-sized entrepreneur and putting it into a more interactive medium. And so I spent a little bit of time as, a, a, as an adjunct professor uh, a couple of years ago with JFK University up in the Bay Area, and I've done a lot of lecturing. So teaching is kind of very much a part of my thing. You'll probably get some of that feel from the Bite Size Entrepreneur series. And so the Teachable class does that as well. And that's at Paylancing, so P-A-Y-L-A-N-C-I-N-G dot teachable dot com. And so those are the big things I'm working on. And definitely keep an eye on the space because there will be some other other books that will be coming out that will hopefully help some people move forward in their entrepreneurship. Damon, this has been wonderful in every way. I really appreciate the time you've taken out with us. Yes, thank you. Thank you so much for having me. And we'll have to, we'll have to catch up in person soon. We will. We will indeed. Thanks a lot. Hey, thanks, Reese. Bye-bye. Thank you for listening to Missions and Marketplace. If you have a brand or business that you want to take online, or you're already online and looking for more exposure, visit us at AffiliateMission.com, the premier affiliate marketing and management agency. Also, feel free to get social with us and check our Facebook, LinkedIn, and Twitter pages and share with us your story on how you're leaving a mark in the world. The best ever. My style is impetuous. My defense is impregnable. And I'm just ferocious. <laughs>